I am really excited for this morning. So we're starting a a long-form series on the book of Ephesians, and this is an incredible book. It's personally one of my favorites. Uh, There's a lot of commentators that would say that this is the crown jewel of the epistles. Like, this book is just incredible. And in in the process of planting over the last year and a half, I've regularly returned to this book, kind of like binge read Ephesians over and over again, and every time the Holy Spirit just seems to open up different things to me. Um, it's, it's been so encouraging for my journey over this process, and I genuinely hope that um, through the Holy Spirit, your eyes, if you've read this book before, you begin to see new things as well. So Eugene Peterson wrote that Ephesians is a revelation of the church that we never see Meaning that the churches we do see are full of people in context and cultures that they live in. Our churches are, come in many shapes and different sizes with different structures and expressions and different methodologies and different visions and missions and methods and X, Y, and Z. And throughout time and history, there has been a foundation on which all of our churches have always flourished upon. So that is the church that we don't see that nonetheless is present. That foundation is the church that we don't see. The church that we do see is the different expressions throughout history. So if you've ever wondered why the church matters or wanted a clear picture for how to live the Christian life in discipleship with a community of believers, then Ephesians is your book. A few weeks back, the team and I, we took some time to read through the book of Ephesians, and then we came back together with notes on the different themes and ideas that we saw throughout the book. And here's just a list of what we saw coming up. So first, it's, it's a really helpful and tangible book. Like, it's not just up in the clouds. It gets dirty, um, and dirty in a good way. Like, we get our hands in, in the weeds and gives us something to work with. It can be separated into two large chunks, belief and practice, or this is what you know is true of God and what you know is true about yourself, and therefore this is how you live that out practically. It hits topics like the gospel, identity, community, discipleship, and growing up in Christ, um, holiness, what it means to live on mission in the world, prayer, family and the household, biblical worldview, spiritual warfare, living in unity, and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a letter that's not written in a vacuum. It's written to specific people at a specific point in time. And even though, so we, most scholars and readers kind of conjecture, and I think this is pretty accurate, that Um, This book wasn't just meant for the city of Ephesus, but was meant to be spread around across the region because of context that Ephesus was, uh, became the the hub for Christianity for a time period. And so everything that happened there was essentially sent out. So we think that this is a book not just meant for Ephesus, but applies to like a broader level and understanding of churches. And fortunate for us, we have the origin story of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. So if you wouldn't mind opening up to Acts chapter 19, instead of diving straight into Ephesians, I felt like it might be helpful for us to dig into that origin story and see where um, this church began and then allow that to prompt us as we move into the rest of the book. My hope is that by looking at the first 20 verses of Acts 19, we might better understand their context and immerse ourselves in the narrative of Ephesus. So, the city of Ephesus. 
Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, and it was a dominant influence in Roman culture. So it was like a dominant city within society. It was wealthy. It was a center for trade and communication. So there were people going in and out. There was an influx of commodities and cultures constantly coming in and out of the city. More than any other city in its time, it was dominated by spirituality. So Ephesus was known for its spiritual culture, not just its Um, economic culture. The entire city operated under the idea that the spiritual world was real, and uh, that spiritual world influenced virtually everything else in ordinary, everyday life. So the the common predominant spiritual practices in Ephesus included astrology, magic, and pagan worship or religion. So pagan religion, magic, and astrology. So magic was a way of using spiritual practices like incantations and rituals and spiritual objects like words or totems or stones and and different kinds of objects in order to gain control over the spiritual world to hopefully manifest whatever outcome you desired. And the predominant religion in the city was pagan worship to the Greek goddess Artemis. So the temple of Artemis was an incredible sight to see. It was one of the known wonders of the ancient world. So this thing was just mind-boggling, how beautiful it was, how like, powerful it was. Um, it was. It was a fortress, so like most of the city's banking actually occurred within the temple of Artemis. So not only did they um, have a grip on the culture spiritually, but they also were connected to the economy of the city, which made um, Artemis even more indispensable. Um, Artemis was the goddess of success, security, comfort, financial provision, fertility, health, and sexual pleasure. Like, that's a a laundry list of things that this goddess was connected to. So if you were a businessman and you had a deal that you wanted to go successfully, you would offer sacrifices to Artemis. If um, your financial status was iffy, then um, you would hopefully begin to offer sacrifices to like then in hopes get that raised. Like it was spiritually, your financial status was spiritually and actually physically connected to right worship. If you were struggling with fertility, the first thoughts that you had were why wasn't um, Artemis uh, pleased with me and what can I do to fix that? Like, um, if, if you were desiring for your family to be healthy, you made for sure that you were, do you get what I'm saying? Are you tracking with me? There were temple prostitutes that were readily available within the um, community, which is um, unfortunate. I mean, it was this horrible culture that they were empowering that reality. And it was actually communicated to women that you used your sexuality to gain spiritual power over men. So it was this entire culture that was just muddied and ingrained with Artemis worship. Now, even though overt pagan worship to any specific pagan god isn't uh, an issue for us in our society. We still offer sacrifice and devote ourselves and our lives, our time, our resources, um, our family, our relationship, even ourselves, in order to gain this same kind of outcome in these aspects of our lives. We still sacrifice our time. We still sacrifice our resources, our relationships to gain in these aspects of life. Success, security, comfort, financial provision, fertility, health, and sexual pleasure. 
we still give ourselves over in different ways. It's just not as overt. And we might not call it magic, but our culture is extremely spiritual and we're manifesting things all of the time, right? Like, we talk about the universe. And astrology, well, that doesn't need much explanation. Like, that's present in our culture as well. I say all of this because I want you to immerse yourself in the story. If we can find the intersection points between our culture and theirs, it helps us, or it helps what we're reading become more real. So, Paul shows up in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. I love the idea of approaching it from the perspective of Paul as a church planter. Like, what, if he was to show up in Pasadena and he was gathering a launch team and he was pulling people in and saying, okay, you know, I'm, I'm planting a church and I want you to be a part of it. Like, what would his vision be? What would his strategy for planting that church be? Like, what would he say? What would his strategy be for reaching Pasadena or Los Angeles? What I want us to see for the remainder of our time and what I think actually could be helpful for us as a church plant, you know, less than a year in, is four things that Paul does upon arriving in Ephesus. And maybe there's some implications for what that might mean for us in our context as we continue to be missional towards the city. Sound like a plan? Cool. All right. So the first thing that Paul does is invitation. So he finds disciples and invites them into the fullness of the Christian experience. So verse 1 of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. Uh, well, we haven't even really heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Like, what are you talking about, Paul? And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So he invites these, he finds these disciples and then he invites them into experiencing the fullness of the Christian life. There's some curious division on whether or not these disciples were actually followers of Jesus or not. Why? Well, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. And elsewhere in scripture, it clearly states that belief in Jesus means that you receive the Holy Spirit. Well, in Ephesians 1, verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So upon belief in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God, seals you. So you, you are given the Holy Spirit. Then Paul prays in Ephesians 3, 19, that these same believers who've believed and have been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, 3.19, he prays that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. But wait, aren't they already believers? Aren't they already filled? Why is it that Paul is praying that they would be filled with the fullness of God? And then in Ephesians 5.18, he says, don't get drunk with wine, 
for that leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So that phrase, be filled there, is a present passive imperative, and more literally translate to continue or keep on being filled with the presence of God. Don't get drunk, don't continue to fill yourself with wine, but keep on being filled over and over and over again with the Spirit. So it seems as though the Bible is saying that though as followers of Jesus, upon belief in Christ, we are filled with the fullness of God, we are not filled to the fullness of God as much as possible. We can keep on being filled over and over again. And on top of that, if we track back to Acts 18, there's this missionary named Apollos who is in Ephesus and he's bringing people to Jesus. He's proclaiming the gospel. Some people are converted, but Apollos doesn't understand or know about the Holy Spirit. So he, he doesn't understand that the, theologically, he, he's not communicating about that. And so Paul shows up and it, it's almost as if he's clarifying that issue. So from what I can gather, it seems like Paul knew that when they believed in Jesus, they had like, like theologically come like to know Jesus and the presence of God was in them. They had technically been sealed with the Holy Spirit inside of them, but functionally they were unaware of that reality and what it actually meant for their lives. Honestly, it really doesn't matter uh, because I think, I mean, whether or not we see it as, you know, they're actual followers of Jesus or they're just spiritually curious because Paul's strategy doesn't change here. Whether they're disciples or just spiritually curious, he invites them into the fullness of the Christian experience. And honestly, in our context, we see both, both like disciples that don't get it completely and spiritually curious people that are eager to learn the fullness of the Christian life. And sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference, right? Like, you, it's really hard to tell. What Paul desires for their lives is for them to step into everything that we have access to. He wants them to embrace the total package. He sees that there is something missing. He explains that to them, realigns their belief and their theology, gives them principles to live by, and then he encourages them to actually begin to practice and live that out. He invites them into participation of their new reality. So he lays hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy, which is Luke's like shorthand phrase throughout the book of Acts for like the spiritual gifts were manifested in uh, the community. It's not specific to tongues and prophecy. This is just a shorthand. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit were present in the, in the community. Um, so he wants them to embrace this reality. And this is a regular thing for Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, Paul says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So it's common for him. He didn't want them to just have right theology, but right practice, which included the Holy Spirit. He, he regularly expected for when the gospel was proclaimed, for it not to just be a cognitive resonance, but also a spiritual and tangible public manifestation. He expected for the gospel to be publicly manifested when it was proclaimed. So, first, Paul finds disciples or spiritually curious people, whatever way you want to go with that, it's fine. And he invites them into the fullness of the Christian life. Two, there's the synagogue. So he enters into the synagogue with the message of the kingdom. So verse 8, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So when we read synagogue, we typically think church building, right? 
uh, we think like church service, like their version, the Jewish understanding of church. But that's not all it was. It was so much more than that. Yes, it was a place where, um, you know, services were held on Sabbath. Um, it was a place where sacrifices were given. Uh, Pharisees were um, actually raising up and discipling their own students in the law, in the Torah. So it was a religious hub, but it was also a cultural and communal hub. Like, it was a place where people were consistently moving in and out. They were utilizing this space as a normal public space in society. So Paul shows up and he goes to the people that he knows and that he gets first. And that's important. It's good to, rem to remember that, that he knows where he relates. He knows where he fits in and he steps into those places. He's still a Pharisee. And he could step in and warrant an audience easily. He would have been honored and respected and had opportunity to speak about Jesus freely. And he would meet new, new people, interact with them, and talk to them about Jesus. So in a public, ordinary life, he offers the gospel to them. He displays the reality of the kingdom of God breaking in, and he talks about Jesus with them. He's not just standing on a street corner proclaiming this out. He's not just going to a church service and talking about Jesus in the midst of a Jewish temple practice or worship. He's, he's engaging with people. He's being conversational with them. He's reasoning about the kingdom. For Paul, the good news of Jesus' kingdom coming to earth, the reality that, that God and his way of life have been made accessible for us through belief in Christ's death and resurrection, that reality affected Paul's private and his public life. He was, he was communicating in public spaces. So next is discipleship. He doesn't spend time trying to convince stubborn people about the way, but actually focuses on discipleship. Continue reading. In verse 9, it says, When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. Ah, oh, this is like some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. So Paul experiences some, some opposition here, and he moves his ministry focus from the synagogue to the hall of Tyrannus, which was essentially like a school hall or a venue or a lecture hall of some sort. We don't know. It was something that he could rent out and engage with his disciples in. And in the same way that when we read synagogue, we think church, we can then read the Hall of Tyrannus and go, okay, now he's going to the public spaces. Now he's finally going to the streets and preaching to the people. And that, that doesn't completely get at what is happening here in the scriptures. Like There is a shift in Paul's ministry, but it's not in what we would expect. He focuses on discipleship, not the resistant. He takes his small band of people who have committed to the way of Jesus and develops them into potent, compelling, missional disciples. He trains them up and sends them out all over Asia. And over the course of two years, this process has had so much success that the entire region of Asia has heard the good news of the kingdom, Like, which is an impressive feat, to say the least, right? Paul's focus on micro-discipleship produces macro results. Last, he operates in power. Verse 11. 
And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So this is such a great story. Like, just immerse yourself in that reality. Like, what we've got here is um, the the word extraordinary miracles, or that word extraordinary, is a made-up word by Luke. It's not found anywhere else. He's essentially saying, I don't understand what's going on in Ephesus, and we don't have language to describe this. So I'm going to make up a word that helps me define what was happening. Like, we've seen healings. We've seen, like, miracles and incredible exploits, but nothing like we've seen in Ephesus. Just imagine this with me. Like, Paul is hanging out doing ministry in the Hall of Tyrannus in this school, and some of his disciples show up and are like, okay, um, there's some people on the other side of the city that need healing. And Paul's like, okay, here, let's try this. I'm going to pray over this napkin, and you're going to take it to them and touch it to them. And let's see what happens. And it works. (laughs) And those miracles continue to increase over and over and over again. It's like, I mean, Paul is like doing extraordinary things in this moment, and Luke doesn't have a category for it. He's a doctor. He's a pretty smart guy. He's got a great vernacular, right? And he's like, I literally do not have a category for this. I know. I'll make one. Like, he creates a category for the things that are happening in Ephesus. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So remember when I said magic was a thing in the culture? Um, They had created businesses around this. So like exorcists weren't just like trying to get rid of demons for the benefit of the person that was demonized. They were actually getting paid to perform exorcisms and to create these like, um, like they they essentially created an economy through different magic and practices within the culture. And so it says, verse 14, or wait here, let's, let's read 13 again. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, itinerant Jewish exorcists, such an interesting phrase, uh, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. Oh, so Jesus' name is working, and we're going to try it out. And they'd say, I jury you by the name, or by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. So seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. So starting to talk back. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. Like Paul has reputation in the spiritual world. Love that. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Like, this is insane. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So all of this, like the reality of Jesus and the reality that Paul is operating in power and he's teaching his disciples to do this as well, this begins to shake things up within the community. Like, both spiritually and socially. So you've got this scene with the demonic, which shows that in partnership with Jesus, when we plant churches and are operating in power, we are waging war against the spiritual forces of darkness. 
Like, what we are doing is waging war. And then Jesus' reputation increases among the people. And so they're burning idols. They're burning books and renouncing magical practices. One of the things that you'll notice about Paul's um, engagement when he jumps into different cities in his missionary journeys is that he's really interested in freeing the people from the powers of the city that they live in. Let me say that again. Like he, he wants to help you understand how to free yourself from the culture and the powers of the city that we live in. There are spiritual forces and strongholds and idols in cities and regions that are holding us captive. And through the power of the Spirit, Paul is showing us that there is a better way. And his name is Jesus. So, in conclusion, here's just a few thoughts on what Paul does. I was trying to go through those quickly. First is invitation. He finds disciples who are spiritually curious and invites them into the fullness of the Christian experience. Two, synagogue. He proclaims the kingdom in public spaces. Three, discipleship. He focuses on discipleship and not the resistant. And four, power. He lives empowered by the Spirit. And so what is the result of all of that in 20 verses? Verse 20, it says, The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So I'd like to introduce you to my friend Paul, and he'd like to plant a church. What does this mean for us today? How might we apply these realities for our specific context? Here's a few questions I want us to consider. One, what is your vision? We need to gain a God-sized vision for what he can do in this city. It's so easy to get caught up in thinking in terms of church attendance, of thinking about our services, right? Like, oh man, the sermon was really good. Like, they're so nice and engaging in this church. I love it. Like, the culture there is really chill. I'm just looking to help build a community that I can call home. And all of those things are really good, right? But God has so much more for you than a good service and a social club. And honestly, I'm not so sure we want a social club yet because, like, none of you guys came to bowling night. Shots fired. Hey, kidding, kidding, kidding. Okay. <laughs> Somebody agreed with me. Thanks, toots. <laughs> Uh, God is looking to transform cities, cultures. He's looking to, to transform your business, or the, where you work, your neighborhood, your household. He wants to transform entire regions, and he wants to use you to do it. He wants to use you. It's like, okay, so we're planting a church, and um, if you call Steadfast Home, if this is your family, then that means you are a part of the building team. And I just have a question for you. Like, what do you hope we have to show for in 20 years? Like, what do you, have, what do you hope we have to show for? Like, maybe you haven't thought about it, and that's 100% okay. You know? Or maybe it, it, you don't know, or you're not sure how long you're even going to be living in Pasadena, and that's 100% okay. Or maybe you don't care. Like, what do you hope that we have to show for? Is it a banging Sunday service with awesome uh, preachers on the roster and an incredible worship team? 
Is it a building one day? In 20 years, what do you hope we have to show for? Like, honestly, like, there's nothing wrong with a building. I'd love for us to have a building. And if you'd like to, you can donate to the Steadfast Building Fund, which does not exist. But, um, like, what, what do you hope we have to show for? My hope is the people. That scattered across this city, there would be thousands of people who have been transformed for the sake of the kingdom because of the people in this room. My hope is that eventually you will be able to cross the city line into Pasadena and feel the spiritual shift because the presence of God is so thick in this city, not just when you walk into this room. Because of the community that is being built in our little school of Tyrannus right now. Like that is my hope. We need a kingdom-sized vision for what God can do in our city and in our region. What is your vision? Number two, what is your model? So it's interesting if you place this story in Acts 19 over the backdrop of Jesus's ministry for three years, how many similarities start to pop up all over the place. So Jesus begins his ministry and invites 12 disciples into the fullness of life to join him on the greatest adventure the world has ever known. The most predominant message that Jesus preached was the kingdom of God. In Luke 4.16, it tells us that it was Jesus' custom to regularly communicate publicly in the synagogue. Like, he continued to do that. Over and over again, we see that through, uh, throughout his ministry, he ministered to the crowds, yes, but he also only discipled a few. So he ministered to the crowds, but he, he was more intentional with a handful, and that had exponential impact for the world. When he was rejected, he moved on. He healed the sick, raised the dead, casted out demons, and operated in power. Where did Paul get his planting strategy? Jesus. Jesus is our model, and it's not just for planting, but for all of life. We do what he did. We model our lives after him. We place our focus on him. I believe there's a shift coming in the Western church that's going to change and reorder our priorities back to the way that they should be. I hope you feel this too. It's back to first love, back to Jesus being the focus and the front and center of everything in our lives. We need to stop placing our attention on our preachers on who's preaching for that Sunday or that next influencer or um, guy who wrote a book that we want to place all of our attention on. We need to stop placing our attention on who is leading worship. We need, I mean, honestly, I don't care if you're an amazing organizational leader or you think that our production isn't good enough on Sunday services or during Sunday gatherings. I'm not too concerned with the extra thing that you think we need to add to our services so that you can have a better experience because my job isn't to help you have a better experience it's to help you come and die like who is your model who are we focusing on we need to get back to Jesus his way of life his mission the expansion of the kingdom in every aspect of life we need to get Back to the worship of Jesus in spirit and in truth. His ways, his words, his commands. 
Obedience to his commands. In verse 17 of Acts 19, it says the name of Jesus was extolled. Not Paul. Not steadfast. The name of Jesus. And now that doesn't mean I don't want you to invite your friends to steadfast so that we can continue to help people recognize what we're doing in this city. Like, please do invite your friends and your family. Why wouldn't you want to invite your friends, family, coworkers to what we've experienced here? Why wouldn't you want them to partner with a community that wants to disciple into Jesus so that they can have greater purpose and mission and be sent back into the world to impact, or impact their worlds for the sake of the kingdom? The point is, is that I don't want our reputation increasing over Jesus's. Like, I don't want to forsake focusing on Jesus for the, uh, to um, help our reputation increase. And frankly, there's a lot of churches out there that are really good at discipling people into the culture of their own churches better than they are at discipling them into Jesus and the way of the kingdom. Do you agree or not? Like, I, I feel that. The greatest gift that you can give to anyone is not your gifting. It's not your presence. It's not a paycheck. The greatest gift that you can give to anyone is who Christ is being formed inside of you. The greatest thing that you can offer to anyone is who Christ is inside of you. Jesus is our model. Are we copying him or something else, right? Number three, do you want your friends to encounter Jesus? The thing we need to ask is whether or not we really want our friends to encounter him. And I'm not just talking like, like a mental ascent, right? I'm not just talking about a good argument that convinces people that the Christian practices will help their lives become spiritually better. I'm not just talking about a convincing or compelling discussion around the existence of God or why Jesus actually did raise from the dead. All those things are good. They're accurate. And they're, they're true. But I'm talking about a real encounter with the living God. The presence of the all-powerful, omnipotent King Jesus lives inside of you. And because of that, we have to come to terms with whether or not we actually believe that that makes a difference in other people's lives around us and what we're going to do about it. So I have this friend, and I've had him for a number of years. I've known him for, I think, like seven years now. And like he's really smart, like brilliant, too brilliant for his own good, and um, doesn't believe in Jesus, uh, kind of approaches uh, religion in general from a philosophical point of view. And he's like, you know what, if it works for you, that's great. I have my own way. And we were having a conversation the other day, and it was, it was typical, you know, just talking about life. And it turns out he's been having trouble sleeping. And um, it's been like, a couple weeks where he's just had a few hours of sleep every night and it's really taking its toll on his energy and his morale and his emotional health. And he said, like, I've tried everything, man. Meditation, medication, like nothing's working. And so I was like, hey, how about I pray for you? Um, is that okay? Can I pray? And he was like, yeah, um, yeah, you can pray for me. Go ahead. I was like, no, like, like right now. Can I do that right now? And he was like, okay, sure. This is awkward. I said, all right, um, we're going to make this as simple as possible. We don't have to close our eyes or anything so that like nobody watches. I just want to like like put my hand on your shoulder and say a few words and ask Jesus to like fix your your sleeping problem. He's like, okay. Do I need to like 
like open my hands or do a cross sign or anything. Like he literally didn't know what to do, and it was it was hilarious. I loved it. Um, I said, "Nah, man, you're fine. I'm gonna keep my eyes open. You can keep your eyes open." Um, but uh, I'm just going to pray to Jesus real quick. And so I, I lay my hand on his shoulder, and I'm like, Lord, you love this man, and I just ask that you would provide sleep for him tonight and that he would get a good night's rest. Um, amen. And we kept talking, kept doing our thing, and kind of moved on quickly because it was an awkward moment in a coffee shop, and he didn't really know what to do. So I just, like, quickly moved forward. Um, about a week later, I saw him, and he was like, hey, I just want you to know that when you prayed for me, it worked. I slept like a baby that night, and ever since then, I've been, like, praying to Jesus. And it's like, okay, like, we're getting some progress, right? And then he goes, get this, guys. Jesus has been meeting him in his dreams. And, and I, like, then started to communicate to him and, and said something kind of bold. I, I didn't know if this was going to be too forward or not, but I was like, hey, man, I don't know how you're going to receive this, but I think that Jesus wants your heart. And that moment opened up this opportunity for him to just disclose so much that's going on in his life, some pain, some difficulties in his life, and I've just continued to have conversations with him and pray for him, all because he had an encounter with the living God. That's what I want for our friends. Do you want them to just see your healthy spiritual lifestyle or do you want them to experience the fullness of Christ in you? Do you want them to have an encounter with Jesus? That's what I want for us. We need to learn to operate in power. And that's why I'd encourage you guys to all come to the prayer training. I want us to learn how to start with prayer, how to pray for people in the service, but also out in the streets, Being, having the confidence that Jesus can use our prayers, that he actually wants to commune and engage with us. So come to the prayer training next month. Last but not least, how is your discipleship? The last question. How is your discipleship? So this is what I believe is going to affect lasting change for our community and the future of the church at large. Deep intentional, authentic discipleship that invites people into both principle and practice, that teaches them good theology and understanding of God, but then teaches them the way of Jesus and how to live that out practically into their lives, into theology and encounter, that discovers identity, develops character and competency, and then deploys people into the city, into the regions with the presence of God, the hope of the gospel, bringing life wherever they go. I don't want to spend time trying to convince or argue with people that don't want to be involved. Like, it, I, I want us to be invitational. I want us to have the message, not of like condemnation or judgment to anybody that disagrees with us, but I want our message to be like, hey, if you want to be in on the movement of Jesus in our city, then come on, we're gonna find a hall of Tyrannus and plug into discipleship. So a few of the ways that we want to do that is through house churches. Um, and so if you're not a part of a house church, I'd encourage you to get plugged into one, like start engaging in a house church. This is kind of that like 12 person discipleship space where we learn to walk with Jesus in the context of community. Next is a new initiative that we're going to be rolling out here pretty soon called um, that we're calling leadership community. Essentially
Really, I want a space where we can monthly come together and develop leaders and create a culture of leadership that's devoted to Jesus that can sustain Steadfast Church for the long haul. Um, so that's a new space that I'd love to like pull anybody that's interested in that into. So it's a place to develop leaders. It's not saying you have to be a leader of any sort already. Um, and then last but not least, a resource that Meredith uh, put together uh, called Core Groups. So this is something that we have uh, pulled from different experiences in churches in the past. But essentially, a core group um, surrounds itself by uh, three or four different um, practices. And these practices are ones that I think we have the most difficulty with in our context without accountability. So first, there's confession. Next, others, which is our engagement in evangelism. How are we talking to other people about Jesus? Um, reading, um, so our Bible reading. Um, we need help like encouraging each other to read our Bibles. And then last but not least, least, encouragement on all of that, a space where we can build each other up and pray for each other. And um, Meredith put a, together a, an incredible PDF. She's been doing this and seen a lot of fruit from this in her life um, over the past like few years. Um, we both have done this in different, in different respects. Um, and it's been a powerful space. If house churches that 12, you know, then this is like the Peter, James, and John space. So we'd encourage you. It's a resource. We're not going to organize it for you. Um, but this is a resource where you go online, you uh, download the PDF, and you find three or four people of the same sex and say, hey, we want to run with you. And you do this on your own time. You create your own schedule, and you kind of pull this resource and um, make it fit or work for your guys' life. Does it sound like a plan? It's, it's, it's really important and so life-giving. So the, the four questions, what, are you, what is your vision? What is your model? Do you want your friends to encounter Jesus? And four, how is your discipleship? To close, I just want to leave you with this. Something that's always been a rock in my shoe with this passage is that the fact that he spent two years and then another year, uh, most likely about three years in total, but two years at the end of verse, what is that, 11 or 10, where it says, like, in two years, the whole region of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. That's two years in the hall of Tyrannus. And I've always asked myself this question, like, what, what was his teaching curriculum? Like, what, what did he teach? What did he train them in? Was it a two-year curriculum, or was it like a, did he train them for a three-month period and then send them out and then have them bring in others and then train them in three months, and it just multiplied over and over again? What, what did he teach? Why do I want to know? Well, because I want this to be our reality. I want to see a city, a region, a nation changed for the sake of the gospel. If only we had his content, well, we do. Ephesians could be that specific content that he used when training them over the course of two years. As I already said, it's the only book that's not corrective in nature. All the other letters that are sent out in the New Testament are um, addressing a specific problem. That doesn't mean that Ephesus didn't have problems. We know that it had problems because um, Paul writes to the pastor of Ephesus, Timothy, uh, telling him to fix all of the problems in Ephesus. But this specific letter has nothing to do with that. It was also meant to be circulated around in the area of Asia. So like, we assume that 
it could be applied to different church contexts as well. What Paul is getting at here is the central core ideas of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what and why the church exists. If you remember in Revelation, when John is writing the book of Revelation, he says that Jesus um, writes, it, writes this letter to Ephesus saying, I need you to get back to your first love. I need you to get back. Also, that is one of my loves right there. You're so cute. No, that's fine. Can you say it again, Eloise? Dabba, dabba, dabba. There it is. <laughs> Good job, baby girl. All right, back in. I've got two seconds left. Ephesus is the, um, is, could be the, the potential curriculum that he used. We think that this book was written 20 years or so after the church was planted. So it's almost as if Paul is saying, like Jesus did when he said, remember your first love. He's, it, you can almost imagine Paul being like, I'm just trying to get you back to the core ideas of what um, has happened in um, your life and in what God intends for you to do because of what has happened in your life because of the gospel. Like he's trying to get us back to that. So... If you want to hear more and any questions arose in the midst of our conversation this morning, come back next week and we're going to do a long form series on the book of Ephesians. Sound fun? Cool. All right, let's pray. Um, if you wouldn't mind standing with me to your feet. And um, if you wouldn't mind opening up your hands in front of you, um, this is a posture of surrender. Um, it kind of sets our, the tone of our bodies to connect to what we want to communicate to the Lord. Lord, we're releasing and we're offering our lives to you. Just take the next couple of moments. And even though this was like intro series heavy, it was very like information heavy. I don't want to leave this room and, until like we've allowed the spirit to take that information and, and transform us. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing in this room. We thank you for your peace. We thank you for <laughs> loud babies. Jesus, I pray that you would instill in us and give us vision for what you can do in this city. Maybe some of you, when I ask that question, have you had, or do you want your friends to have an encounter with Jesus? You thought to yourself, man, I don't know the last time I had an encounter with the living God. Um, and I just, I wanna invite the Holy Spirit into this moment and allow Jesus to meet with you. Holy Spirit, would you come into our hearts more uh, than you already have? Would you warm the souls of the people in this room? Would you soften hearts? Would you instill forgiveness and repentance? Would you create in us a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within us? Jesus, meet with us in this moment.
God, forgive us for uh, putting our attention on all of these other things and not on you. I pray that our focus remains on you. Continue to instill in us a hunger for more of you and that that fragrance would then spill out into our lives, that we would be bold enough to have conversations with our friends about you, that we would be bold enough to pray in public with people, not just pray for them at night, but pray with them. And Jesus, I just, I pray that you would build us into a people uh, that are devoted to discipleship that we would grow up in you and commit our ways to you. Because I want, <laughs> I, I want that to be our reality. I want verse 10, Jesus, that the word of the Lord would spread and that everyone in Asia would heard, will have heard the gospel. Let that be our cry, Jesus. In your holy heavenly name we pray, amen.